everybody and welcome to this brand new IT security podcast. Every episode we'll be looking at elements of the SOC or security operations, but also conversations with various different guests looking at other areas within the IT industry. You're listening to SOC Tales. I'm top 9% on TriHackMe and I don't even know how to open a terminal. I was really hesitant when we set up Discord. Tell me about sex <laughs> The GDPR stuff can be the bane of my existence sometimes. I'm your host, Matt Ford, and welcome to episode four. So this episode, actually, we are going back a little more to the reason why I set up this podcast in the first place. We have the fantastic Sean Lynn from Secura talking about working in a SOC, managing a SOC, some of the finer points of that, things like how do we deal with the alert logic, how do we deal with threat hunting, tripwires, use of IOCs, but also some of the other elements regarding burnout, mental health, some of those other elements of the conversations that we kind of of deal with and that work aspect that we deal with as part of that. Uh, But also towards the end, if you manage to listen through to the for sock's sake part, uh, probably, arguably the best one we've had yet, so certainly worth uh, a listen again the podcast is just slightly over an hour which again is a little longer than i was usually uh, aiming for but there's some really good content in there from from sean so without further ado here's the interview so now we're going over to our uh, guest interview and we have uh, Sean Lynn from uh, Secura. Uh, Secura have been listed as one of the top 250 MSSPs, uh, and they concentrate on things like managed detection and response, managed vulnerability scanning, digital forensics, uh, and incident response. Um, they've been up for a number of awards fairly recently as well, including being highly commended at the SE Awards last year in 2022. Uh, and today we have Sean, one of our senior SOC analysts at Secura. Welcome, Sean. Hi, yeah, thanks for enjoying, uh, inviting me. Yeah, not a problem at all, not a problem at all. So um, for those of uh, listeners out there that are not necessarily familiar with uh, Secure, are you able to give us a quick rundown maybe of yourself and some of the, the, the services that you offer? Yeah, sure. So um, as you say, I'm a senior cybersecurity analyst um, and Secure was founded in September 2019, I believe. Um, and yeah, as you say, their, their main focus really is their, their sort of managed detection and response uh, service. Um, and that sort of filters out from the, the SOC, which is where I work from. Um, and um, I, I guess to clear things up straight away is the SOC, not not the woolly thing you put on your feet when it's cold, <laughs> but uh, a security operations center. So um, it's, it's all based on defensive operations um, and how a team interacts with an organization, uh, you know, we're ingesting logs from their computer systems and networks, et cetera. Um, and we're monitoring for security threats. Um, and at the end of the day, we are protecting that organization from those threats. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, a couple of people have said to me when I've done this po- this podcast, the sock tales, they're like, is this something to do with fashion? It's like, no, it's nothing to do with fashion. It is it's, to do with... A, yeah. yeah. First <laughs> time I told my uh, job title to my granddad, he, uh, yeah, that, that joke's been many times mentioned around the table. Brilliant. Brilliant. So for you as um, kind of your, your day-to-day role, and, and I'm hoping some of the uh, some of the listeners for the podcast, they might be working in a SOC currently or or maybe to looking to work to, to move into a kind of SOC type role in various different tiers. Um, you know, we can go into some of the various different details of 
uh, incidents and and uh, and some of those kind of aspects. But what's your kind of day to day role from your? Uh, we'll say nine to five. We know socks not yeah. always nine to five. But what's your kind of nine to five nine to five role? Okay, so I guess to start with, really, is, is explaining what a sock actually is, and then it'll make a bit more sense what what I do personally. Um, so, as I was alluding to earlier, the the sock will be ingesting event logs um, and, and other information from from our organisations or our customers, um, and we will be monitoring that for threats. So, the way I like to explain it to people is uh, sort of digital breadcrumbs, sort of Hansel and Gretel style story. Um, as a bad guy gets into the system, into the network, or whatnot they're going to do certain things that are going to leave behind certain digital footprints or digital breadcrumbs. And, and what we can do um, from a sort of reactive approach is to lay virtual tripwires, really. Um, and essentially, if a bad guy or an APT or a hacker, whatever you want to call them, they, they trigger uh, one of those tripwires doing some form of activity, uh, we in the SOC are alerted to that. Um, and then my nine to five job really is is responding to those um, incidents, those those tripwires being triggered um, and doing that as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible. Um, and the main goal at the end of the day is to make sure that that, that customer's estate isn't breached, uh, you know, information isn't stolen or service disrupted. Fantastic. So, I mean, there must be a lot of information that you're seeing as 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 part of the uh, these kind of alerts as part of these these breadcrumbs and um, how easy is it or, or how do you kind of go about looking at all the various different bits of data that are coming in and being able to determine what is going to be a breadcrumb what is going to be i don't know what other kind of analogy can we use uh, a bit of cake on the floor yeah. or whatever <laughs> how do you kind of um manage the noise that you're seeing coming in to be able to pick out the more pertinent parts as part of that investigation then? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if we're talking about uh, the, the biggest cybersecurity companies, we're talking about hundreds of millions, if not billions um, of event logs coming in each day. Um, and at face value, that that's a lot of information. And this day and age, data is, you know, one of the most valuable things in the world at the moment. Um, so, Breaking that apart, understanding it, and, and not just losing yourself in the noise. Um, it all comes down to the tools that you're using and, and their approach. So in terms of, of the MDR service that Secure offer, um, that's that's down to alert logic and you know things like threat intelligence. And we want to be aware of what the latest threats to our um, customers is going to be. Um, and that is then uh, highlighted or broken down if you like into the alert logic so what i mean by that is when you open an email or visit a website um, that is logged in an event log and within that event log bits of information um, such as the time that you visited the website your username your tag um, and all of the other information below that uh, what took place um, so if you imagine every single person visiting the same website right now that is many 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 event logs so the alert logic, um, or these digital tripwires, if you like, that is looking for very specific activity um, when someone does something, uh, so a, a behavior. Um, so when that person does that behavior or makes that behavior, whatever the wording would be, um, the alert logic detects that and it will raise an incident. So it's not we're looking and trawling through hundreds of millions, if not billions of event logs every day. There is a um, reactive uh, side to this. There is a second side to this, this which is the proactive side, um, which is where threat hunting comes in. 
So another part of a, of a SOC um, capability is to look for things that would have actually got through the net. You know, they've stepped over that tripwire. Um, and we do that with, well, there's, there's a number of ways that we can do that, but one of the main ways is a hypothesis-driven uh, threat hunt. So a bit like in science, you hypothesize what you want the result to be or what you think is going to happen, and then you carry out that threat hunt. So, for example, we know that uh, there's a big APT group um, that's busy at the moment, a, a big threat actor. They're doing very specific um, activity, specific behaviors are taking place. So we can uh, proactively go and look for that specific behavior in and amongst those hundreds of millions of uh, event logs. So it, it's all about taking that massive pile of information and, and really drilling down into the specifics of either what we're looking for or something that's happened and we're reacting to that alert. I was going to say, so, it, you know, you've got those two elements. You've got the reactive and, and proactive. You've got the something's happened. Let's do our data enrichment. Uh, and we'll come on to some of your threat intel feeds and that kind of thing. But then also the proactive of, as you say, we've seen this APT group or we've seen this ransomware group and their tactics are X, Y and Z. Um, so it sounds like you're you're using that information to go out and and proactively hunt through customers' environments and say, actually, we've not seen anything trigger, but we've seen this IOC in your environment to suggest that that maybe you have some kind of breach or something something that's there. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, and it's a balancing act really because you you can bring in too much intelligence or enrich too much if you like. Um, there are, as you say, feeds out there. Um, some are open source and community driven. Um, it, you know, Twitter sometimes can be your best friend because people immediately want to start talking about the latest um, CVE or exploit. So as soon as something like that happens, you can go on there and people are talking about this IP has been doing this activity. And we can take that and we'll go and threat hunt for that IP on our customers' estates. But if we're automatically doing that you know we're, we're feeding in uh, hundreds of ips from a tool you know there's things like misp um, and an alien vault just to name a few they are full absolutely full to the brim of, of iocs these indicators so ips domains etc if you was to just take all of that and plug it straight into your tools i mean that's that's suicidal to be honest with you because a lot of it is is not managed um and, and one of the biggest issues is a lot of it's historic um, so as we know, with with the APT groups and you know these organised crime groups, if they think they've been detected by you know the NCA or whoever, they'll move on to another domain. They'll they'll disappear from that IP address or they'll change tack and that specific behaviour suddenly becomes null. So if you suddenly plugged in all of that feed or all that intelligence from the feed into your tool you're probably going to get bombarded. Not probably, you will get bombarded with uh, false positives. Um, and false positives are the bane of a SOC analyst life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It, it's amazing that you mentioned Twitter there because I use that a lot for for that kind of thing, for looking at the current trends or or what kind of IOCs or what are the, the ransomware groups doing, who's been breached. Um, I, I've got the various different elements that I, I go and check, but Twitter seems to be a main kind of focus point for that, which is crazy when you think it's really just kind of social media. And again, what you're saying there about being able to expire um, the various different IOCs, because, you know, you have things like the, the DGA, the domain generation algorithms, where you will just have hundreds and hundreds of domains that will be generated as part of a malware campaign. Um, if you start feeding all those in, that's going to be 
as you say, it's going to be a huge, huge amount of noise. So do you manage that on a kind of like a time basis or is it um, an individual feed basis? Do you normally focus on one type of, of threat feed, mainly, yeah, the, you know, reliability scoring, that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. There, there's a few elements to it. Um, so, I mean, you take a customer and that customer has very specific technology or technology stack on their estate. Um, and those uh, servers, if you like, or the vendor or provider is only going to be uh, very specific exploits specific to that server. So you don't need to start plugging in things for Cisco if they're using F5. Um, so you need to be specific about the IOC enrichment for each customer. Um, and also, as you say, expiry dates on historic IOCs. Um, but also there's there's other projects out there like um, SOC Prime, um, where the whole service is dedicated to um, independently created and checked um, alert logic. So they've already got IOCs, or let's say there's a zero day that comes out tomorrow morning, first thing. I know nothing about it because it's brand new. Um, all of the customers suddenly email in at nine o'clock saying, you know, we've seen this. What have you done to protect us? And, you know, <laughs> within an hour, everything has, has hit the fan. Twitter, first place I go. And as you say, it's, it's like a, a community sharing of intelligence. You have to obviously take that with a pinch of salt because none of it's audited. It's not official, if you like. Um, but you get to see a bit of an idea of how a group might be moving around in the wild especially if you start if you, if you know how to use twitter properly and you can do keyword searches or if you're looking for a specific ip you look at all of the tweets for that specific ip and you can see people talking about it and, and you start to get ideas of, of how it's moving about and that's when like the proof of concepts come out if you have a proof of concept where someone's run through how the exploit actually takes place people put it on youtube people make white papers then we can sort of bring it more in-house and within a SOC team, as well as the analysts, there might be someone who's more focused on uh, threat intelligence or reverse engineering. You know, they're a malware analysis or a malware analyst. Um, and they will then, as the uh, proof of concept has been put together, reverse that, see how that uh, activity is taking place in reverse, get to the very first trigger point. Um, and then I guess the idea is, uh, to detect it as early on in the chain as possible. So sort of going going swings and roundabouts here, but things like the MITRE attack um, framework, um, each behavior or tactic or technique has a specific ID. Um, so if we can find a specific uh, technique or tactic and assign an ID to it, we can then create rules specific to that ID. And we have a pool of rules that we can go and um, pick from um, and deploy them to that customer. And then we've got coverage for that uh, tactical technique. Um, so there, there's lots of entities that we can pull together to, to detect that activity as it takes place. You've probably heard of the, the kill chain or the cyber kill chain. Um, yes. Starting from uh, like initial reconnaissance and then all the way through to uh, exfiltration. The best SOC or <laughs> SOC analysts will always say this, but the, the the best outcome is that you detect it as as early as possible. So you you detect the activity at the reconnaissance stage, because the later on down the kill chain that you detect it, the more damage is likely to have taken place. So if we detect um, reconnaissance at the earliest stage, that's great. 
because you know we've seen it when they're still probing around you know they've, they've not really got into the system yet they've not managed to uh break into anything they're there they're taking a look but they're not they're not poking too much if we only realize they've got into the system at exfiltration stage you know they've been in they've wreaked havoc they've got all of your data and they've released it on the dark web for a stupid amount of money you know what's the point of having a sock you, you've, you've completely missed the whole thing take place there yeah so it's all about that that um stage but going back to the the, the reconnaissance um stage one thing with sock analysts and in a sock we're usually going to be integrated with firewalls uh, and firewalls are probably going to be the noisiest sort of systems that you're integrated with in terms of event logs because you've got all the, all of the network traffic inbound and outbound so you end up with the uh, things like web crawlers um, and vulnerability assessment tools that you know people can just go and buy online on on the dark web for a couple of quid point it at an IP and that will start scanning a, a network uh, business and show them what sort of vulnerabilities they may have. Now, the firewalls, if they're public facing, they're going to be seeing that and they're going to be reporting that in. So for any analyst to say that they want to stop it at the earliest stage, at the reconnaissance stage, it's it's much more complicated than that because you can't just simply block every single bad guy IP in the world. You know That, that would be amazing if that was a thing, but it's not. So that's where the whole risk thing comes into it as well. So we accept that that's normal. People are always going to be knocking at the door, just seeing what weaknesses there are. So we accept that risk, and and, and that's when we move later on into the, the cyber kill chain, and um, that's where other alert logic comes in. All right, and as you say, I mean, there's going to be a huge amount of noise there, but the amount of internet traffic that's out there, I mean, we've all done it, right? We've all put a machine into AWS or Azure, opened it up to RDP, and then just sat there and watched all the attempted logins. It doesn't take long before um, you get either kind of script kiddies that are, that are running through and checking these things or even some kind of targeted attack um, towards those uh, those kind of, kind of businesses. That kill chain's a really interesting one because you're looking at technology across different areas you're looking at your your firewall logs from an ingress egress point you're looking at your endpoint logs from a from an edr or xdr perspective um you're looking at, at transfer rates for data exfiltration you're looking at alerts for um lateral movement um do you this can't be a manual process right so how much of this do you look at automating how much do you manual how much you kind of hybrid between the two for that yeah sure so there's there's a big movement in the industry at the moment um started a few years ago and it is all about automation and and saw i know paolo guys have uh, have the xor tool um and that is a massive bonus uh, to a sock because it takes away that capacity where a SOC analyst has to trawl through all of this data or alerts um, and lets them focus on on the actual real threats or other projects to help with with security posture or whatnot. So um, you, you've got these things called playbooks where, as we've been talking about, certain activity happens, it triggers an alert. Specific alerts can be playbooked. And, and as it says on the tin, it runs down a, a chain um, of, of steps or actions um, and it will pull information from from, from other tools uh, or from intelligence feeds. And if it deems that the activity that's happened is a false positive, 
um, it will automatically close that incident and and take it away from the SOC to deal with. So I, sh I should say that um, at the center of most SOCs is something called a SIEM, so a security information event management tool. <laughs> um, and that is sort of like the mothership of where a lot of things uh, are managed. So within that SIEM tool, there might be playbooks, as I was just saying. Um, and if automation wasn't uh, utilized, these incidents would trigger and they would just sit in an incident portal. So the analyst would have to log in at the start of their shift and they'd see there was X amount of incidents over the past hour and off they'd go. They'd go in, investigate each one. One could take 10 minutes, one could take 10 hours if it was, you know, a really bad triggering incident response and, you know, shit hits the fan sort of thing. Um, you've got to appreciate that automation can also be a massive headache as well um, because something that SOCs can also do is automated response actions. So isolating devices, uh, disabling user accounts, quarantining files. Um, your EDR tools are only as good as they've been developed to be. So lots of businesses use uh, remote desktop tools um, and something we noticed a lot during lockdown is people moving to things like Zoom, like um, uh, Teams and, and, and all of the uh, remote con communication tools. Um, a lot of this stuff was being installed onto devices and your EDR tools would see it straight away and go, nope, don't like that. It does loads of dodgy things and they quarantine it. If there were playbooks in place that ran down that same chain and they didn't like it either, you could end up quarantining the, the Teams or Zoom file followed by an isolation of the device. And, you know, I mean, it's going beyond the extreme here, but you don't want to um, disable the user account. But you can see you have to be very granular with how that automation works. Don't get me wrong, it's brilliant. And we, we use it to a huge degree at Secura, but you've got to be careful with how far uh, or how vague you are with automation because it can cause a lot of headaches. Yeah, it's, it's adding that context around what you're seeing because I, I guess some of the tools that are out there would would maybe be as basic or I say basic that's probably the wrong phrase but to to have those kind of settings where okay I've seen a critical alert and I don't know the host name's got the word DC in it therefore I'll immediately quarantine that endpoint machine and then suddenly as you say the shit hits the fan because you're you've automatically quarantined a domain controller and brought half your network down or whatever it is so yeah being able to add that extra context into uh, into what you're seeing, um, the the automation piece as well. There's a, a from a sock perspective, you see a lot of people say that they're getting a little bit tired of of you know maybe kind of tier one type triage type work, or there's a there's burnout from sock analysts that are doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Is this an area where Again, you can either something that you do yourselves or where you can see the industry going from an automation perspective to to help with that kind of kind of burnout, help the SOC analysts start doing maybe something that's probably a bit more interesting or a bit more useful, like some of the active threat hunting rather than just dealing with those triage alerts that come through. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it is a major win for a SOC uh, because it does make the most out of your analysts. Um, you, you don't want them turning up for a 12-hour shift and spending 12 hours just triaging incidents because that is not fun um and what you can do as you say you, you take that time 
away or give it back to them, should I say, and they can focus on more specialist things and, and they can focus on CPD or um, they can specialize in a certain area. So in some socks, there might be a dedicated threat hunting analyst. I mean, in terms of business and saving money for an MDR organization, you don't have to invest in a threat hunting analyst if your SOC analysts are already trained to do that. And they've got the time to do that because the automation you've got in place to reduce you know, your day-to-day noise. So you can have a, a smaller group um, to, to work in the SOC, but they can be dedicated uh, to threat hunting um, and, and your malware analysis or reverse engineering um, and our engineers as well, you know, so it doesn't have to be a huge team of, of individuals that all specialize in, in one field, uh, especially with your automation pieces, we've been saying, you can take all of that workload away, but it also, and I think this is the critical thing, it also frees the analyst up to work with the customer. Um, and a lot of socks, you you end up with your tier one to, to three or, or however it's laid out. And really only the higher tiers have that interaction with the customer in terms of um, actually sitting on calls for service reviews or um, the scopes changing, they're bringing new technologies into the organization. The, the analysts that are dealing with sort of tier one technical triaging of incidents, they're only going to hear that information trickled down from their internal team. So at Secura, we are all analysts. There's, there's no tier system. And what's great about that is every analyst can take an incident from the very first stage of its triggered incident, they'll pick that up. Yes, they'll go through the initial triage, but then they'll also go on that additional journey with the customer afterwards to, to learn from it, sort of a war game lesson learned sort of thing. Um, we tend to try and not raise the same thing twice, let's say once or twice, um, because once we've learned something, we've spoken to the customer and we understand that actually that is normal behavior, um, we can add it to a knowledge base and, and we we build sort of that business as usual picture. Um, and it's great that all of our analysts can be on that same page. Um, and that is in thanks to, to the automation piece is because it's freed them up to do that work. Uh, that's great. And it, really interesting what you were saying about not having a tiered system, because I see this both ways with the customers that I speak to is some say, yes, we have this this tier one, tier two, tier three type environment. We have teams that purely work nights, um, purely work days. They're, they're focused on a, a very specific element of what they do in the knock. And then we have the other customers that we speak to, similar to what you've just described there, is, is more of a flat structure. So you don't have that tiering and everybody's involved doing the, the work across the entire SOC. They're not just focused on various different points, but they're having that engagement with a customer and having that engagement with each other because that's that's how you learn, right? You learn from the customer and also learn from from the other your, your colleagues around the around the SOC as well. Yeah, of course. And and I th- there's positives and negatives to both, really. Um, and I, I've worked in both um, systems, if you like, or models. Um, and I think. For me, and this is this is a personal opinion. I was working twelve-hour night shifts during lockdown, and there was nothing fun about that at all. You know, <laughs> no. Four on, four off, twelve hours. I lived alone. Um, this isn't my little sob story, a tiny violin thing. But <laughs> you know, you, you sat at your PC. I'm a bit of a gamer myself, and you find yourself during lockdown doing nothing other than sitting in front of your PC for 12 hours gaming and then 12 hours at the sock. Obviously that's me being <laughs> my lifestyle, <laughs> but you get the idea of, of how it can actually affect the, the mental health and, and well-being of, of socks as well. And actually that's, that's something that I always uh, talk about when I talk to people about sock and, and burnout is, is the mental health piece as well. 
um, people don't realize that if it's a smaller sock and you're working by yourself, the stress on your shoulders, you know, at any moment, a big incident could come in and, and these multi-million pound organizations are looking at you to protect them. You know, there, there's a lot that, that weighs on your mind when that happens. So as well as um, CPD and, and the stress of work, also, you know, mental health, keeping people active, um, socials and, and, and taking a bit of a tangent here, but having a really good team is is great in terms of like their technical ability and how they can interact with the customer. But also you are a team at the end of the day and SOC teams are really close knit groups of people. Um, so you want to make sure that you've got that social element to it as well. And, and again, during lockdown, doing things like pub quizzes and, and simple things like that, you know, it, it all really helps the calls. Yeah, I, I'm a, a strong uh, advocate of uh, talking about mental health in, in, in businesses. So I'm quite happy that you've brought that up because I think it's a, a, a really key thing. Um, the team I work in is is extremely close. And I, and I think that's really helped over the past couple of years when a lot of us are working from home or, or have been working from home or sometimes have home contracts or working shift work. It can be quite difficult to um, to, to make sure you've still got that kind of collaboration. From the when we're talking about the um, the remote access and working from home, have you seen any change in the way that either you and the team work working remotely within the SOC, or the impact that may have had from a customer's perspective with um, you know more people working remotely, therefore they've got a larger technology footprint or um, a, a wider attack surface that they need to look at? Have you seen any of those kind of significant changes throughout? throughout lockdown or has it been 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 fairly fairly yeah, kind definitely. of static it has changed yeah so in terms of sock uh, and how a sock works um i think the big changes as i was just mentioning is you know you've got to think about each other you, you might be miles away from where each other physically and you've gone from you know let's say you were working as a sock for four years you've all been in that one closed room um, you know, seats next to each other, you can just turn and have a conversation. And there's something as simple as that, turning your chair and just having a conversation with someone next to you. So I think the way the SOC has really changed over the past three years, four years, is that ability to just communicate with with ease. So, you know, Zoom teams, as we were just talking about, I think Zoom took off during lockdown. It, it became very successful and they really focused on their security because of that. Um, and I think that is because everyone suddenly realized that social element and, and this isn't just for cybersecurity this is just generally for work is that element of just turning and talking to the person next to you going to the coffee machine you know you work in cyber we, we run on coffee mm-hmm. so it's, it's it's that total change of dynamic um so but in terms of actual uh, like customer activity and changes in in the dynamic there yeah there was massive changes um the, the way people use their devices. Um, so you've got like your bring your own device policy, your BYOD. But if you give someone uh, the safety net of taking their device home and being in their own home, in their own environment, on their own network, you've then got the whole can of worms of how secure is their network or they start doing things on their work laptop because they don't think they're being watched. You know, they don't know that. There's these weird sock analysts on the other side of the country seeing the things they do. Um, so suddenly you start p- seeing people uh, downloading games for their kids or streaming uh, videos from um, torrenting sites and, you know, simple things like that. But 
they can be quite dangerous sites if they go onto the dodgy ones and they can end up downloading all kinds of stuff. Um, and the other side of that is phishing. There was a massive uptick in phishing as well because uh, there was more targeted phishing in terms of like NHS and, and COVID style uh, emails and, and people were clicking on them left, right and centre. So there, there was a massive change um, in both like a, an offensive side from the attacker's point of view, but also how a human interacted with their work equipment at home so um, obviously like i'm saying with the event logs we're seeing all of that in real time we're seeing all the behaviors so, th so there is a weird uh, human side to this as well yeah it, at, at the analytic side of things i think the user behavior side of things is a really interesting element from cybersecurity with how they're um, interacting with their, their colleagues, how they're dealing with these emails that are coming through. We've seen, uh, we could talk about the, the, the pros and cons of, of phishing awareness till the cows come home because there's, there's, there's a number of different kind of opinions and viewpoints of this. But some people say, look, the, the phishing awareness is really great. It's a really good idea. Others are saying, look, it's completely pointless. Um, you know, it doesn't really show anything and you need to be able to kind of protect, protect people in other ways. But it's interesting to see how that move to work from home uh, as kind of, um, I, I guess, kind of changed a little bit of the way in which we're doing that, doing that protection element. Um, I've had a home contract now in between various different jobs on and off for the past 10 years. I wouldn't, I couldn't go back into an office full time. I'm too used to working from home. Mm, but it's as you say, I'm sat here in the office. I mean, I've got my, my, my family on the other side of the door, but I'm sat here in the office. I don't see anybody day to day the chance to go down to london and sit there with a team for a day is great I, there's no way that i could do this you know per permanently without having some of that social aspects but being able to hybrid that i think is i think is great yeah i think that's that's, that's a massive talking point at the moment isn't it but that mm. whole hybrid approach and i think in some places they were even testing like a three-day working week just just generally three days of work um and the output of that how how much people actually work i mean people go into work and uh being in an office space is great you know I, i'm all for that specifically because i've always worked in sort of a team environment um coming out of uni you're you're in a cohort of students and, and you go into a, a sock you're in a team i've always been part of a team um but at the same time i'm, I'm you know i'm very technology driven um and as i say a bit of a gamer so I know how to set up ways at home to still have that communication piece. The only difference is, is I'm not physically in the same room as that person. But in terms of the the, the hybrid uh, conversation, I'm, I'm the same as you. Like I, I couldn't go back to an office and work 12-hour shifts, four days on, four days off. Um, but I do like, and, and we do this at Secure, is we do meet up in London. Um, we do have social events. And we do uh, work during the day before that. So, you know, I think every now and again, it is good to have that uh, social interaction, that face-to-face -face physically. And that all goes back to what we we're saying with, with mental health. And that is a massive benefit. If, if you do a whole year stint where you work from home without seeing anyone, I think that's where I would draw the line. You do still need to have yeah. that. You'd, you'd, you'd go a bit mad, I think, wouldn't you? Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, coming back to, uh, you know, some of the, the, the various different incidents that you see, um, you know, we talked a, a lot there about the, the, the kill chain and the various different steps of the, of the kill chain. Um, there's a, the phrase that often comes around is that 
from a defensive perspective, you need to plug every single hole. But from attacker's perspective, they only need one way in. I don't think that's necessarily as true anymore because of the technology that's that's out there. Um, but how how much do you deal with the, the the forensics and the incident response aspect of of working with customers when they do have a breach? Yeah. So going back to what you were just saying, I think it's it is it is a losing battle at the end of the day because. Well, I mean, it's a great thing about cyber, but it's also it's a pig. Every day's different. Um, I mean, I could come in tomorrow and there's the the latest, greatest CVE exploit vulnerability. Everyone's affected by it, and there needs to be a, an immediate patch. And in the time it takes for people to do that, the APT groups, the the cyber crime groups, they're they're absolutely having a go. They're hammering that. Um, so there's nothing to say. Um, that you can plug every hole. Anyone that tells you they have a sock that plugs every hole and they are super secure, they're lying to you. And that is the truth. So it is that battle between having um, the best security posture you can have at that point um, so that you've got your sock in place for anything that does fall through. And then again, you've got your, your threat hunting for your, your stuff that falls through the net and doesn't get detected. But in terms of you know your next uh, next day, the zero day comes out, there's a proof of concept. There needs to be that element of someone ready to dedicate their entire day that day to uh, research, create a lot that they can deploy to, to different tools. Because if if you've got three different security tools, for example, and the the language at the back end of that is different, the alert logic is going to need to be made three times to to represent uh, the three different languages. So there is a whole piece there that you've got to be dedicated to that one thing. In terms of incident response. Our, uh, if, our, if our customer engages for a instant response um, engagement, sorry, we will turn to Unit 42 um, and we will sit down in a, a big call, usually on Teams, um, and the customer will run through um, the incident that's taken place. Usually it's when something's far down the kill chain, either it's happened in the past and they've suddenly realized it now, or we've detected it in the SOC. Um, we've raised it to the customer. We've done what we can, and then it sort of becomes a, a cleanup operation, if you like. Um, yeah. So the incident response team will come in. Um, they'll have a look at all of the stuff that we in the SOC have done. So we might have done a, a small report or a write-up on what we've done. We'll obviously have all of the incidents um, that are raised based on the um, the behaviors of, of the actor, the threat actor. Um, and then the incident response capability team or individual they take all that information and then they'll go and do like a big once over of the entire estate or the specific device or um, the email inbox, depending on the sort of incident that's happened. Um, and they'll their output of that will be a nice report to show um, hopefully how they got into the network, um, the sort of things they did while they're on the network. And then um, if they had exfiltrated any data or triggered ransomware or something like that, that's all going to be nicely uh, put together in a report. Now, those reports are really, really valuable to, to SOX because within that report, as I was saying, um, it will list all of the behaviors they went through, uh, the very first entry point. So like with our managed vulnerability service, um, if we can pinpoint the very first point of entry, yes, we can't plug every hole, but we've identified the one that they did use this time round. So it's... I mean, it's controversial to say, but every time there's a cyber attack, there are positives to it because you do identify how they've got into the system. 
So each time you get one, you can plug that gap and your posture does improve. Obviously, the argument is you don't want that happen in the first place. But as we say, it is a losing battle. Yeah. If it happens to somebody else and then you can deal with the... um deal with the positives off the back of that one exactly that's, yeah then, and that's, then that's the, great uh, right <laughs> yeah and then that's where you know twitter and the intelligence feeds comes in Indeed. but you don't want to be plugging gaps for holes you don't actually have if you if you know what i mean yeah absolutely i mean the the, the instant response uh, engagement side of things I, I think is another one of these areas that maybe uh, we don't necessarily talk enough about because the need to have things like instant response retainers and um, working with your, your cyber insurance uh, companies to make sure that that, uh, that you've got that side of things set out because as much as you have all these various different um, protection and detection elements in place um, as you say there's there's going to be times when people get through there's going to be the zero day vulnerabilities and within 10 minutes of that being released there's a pock on github and yeah. and somebody's having a having a pop at it so i think there needs to be uh i mean i don't know what your thought on this i think there needs to be a little bit of um uh, maybe a change of thought, not as much uh, kind of stigma around the incident response um, piece yeah. from a from a from a cyber plan. Would you say? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if we're talking cyber as as it is as an entity as an industry, you know, ten fifteen years ago, it it wasn't really spoken about. It wasn't mainstream. It was never mentioned on the news. Um, and you you go watch the news this week. Cyber will be mentioned once or twice, I guarantee. And it's now coming to the forefront. So you're talking about things like cyber insurance and instant response. There's all of these different functionalities within the cyber industry. It's not just defending or attacking. If if you're red team, there there's so many pieces to that puzzle. And at the end of the day, I think the difficulty is, is funding and, and a business having the ability to pay for a SOC and have uh, like an IR uh, functionality built in or have insurance and, and having all of that built in together. It's it's an expensive thing to, to fork out for each month. And I think that is the conversation that people are now having, especially like board and director level 10 years ago, you'd say, if, let's say you're the CISO or the IT manager, hey, I need x amount of thousands of pounds or tens of thousands of pounds hundreds of thousands of pounds a month to pay for this they would laugh you off and you know we're not it's not going to hit us we're just this this little business it's not going to affect us but i think that's definitely now changing so people are investing they're, they're finding ways to get the money um and if not you know with the money they do have there are businesses out there that will be flexible enough to work with them and i think that's what's great is is the cyber industry is flexible um, especially with smaller cybersecurity businesses or startups, you know they're willing to take on these businesses um, at much cheaper rates than the, the the huge cyber companies. I mean, as you know, some of the prices they they cost people a bomb. So I think it's great that um, that conversation is being had, and and our industry is going to be flexible to support those businesses. Because at the end of the day, as you say, if one business gets popped, that intelligence uh, and that um, behaviour can be shared. Yeah, and with the with the how can I kind of phrase this for for those customers that do get or those companies that do get breached, it's also about how they react. the The transparency in in any kind of press release, details of any data that maybe uh, has been exfiltrated uh, as part of that, being able to share some of the the IOC, some of the instant response elements that they've had to deal with with the wider community. I know that there are some. Uh, companies that do that there are some companies that that don't 
Uh, there was a company I've spoken to recently who said they weren't interested in the insurance side of things because they calculated that if their data was exfiltrated and a ransomware firm, a ransomware group was going to charge them two or three million dollars, they were like, "Well, we can afford that. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. just write that off and we'll deal with the yeah. fallout afterwards." And that's that shocked me, <laughs> but they, it was purely just looking at the looking at the numbers. I think that kind of anecdote is very few and far between, thankfully. But I think yeah. there's a lot more that people are doing now with with the with the whole kind of incident response element. I think the the other worrying thing is the amount of businesses that that do still pay the ransomware um, ransom. You know, if if everyone stopped paying those ransoms, they wouldn't do it because at the end of the day, their goal is to make loads of money. You know, they're ran- they're holding you to ransom until you pay that money. So if people stop paying that money, they would they hopefully you'd think find a different approach. But people do pay the ransom, and that's why they keep doing it. And and it's a worry, but no, as I say, it's a losing battle. So as long as we can keep up to date with the the malware or you know that that very first entry point or how they got onto the system, that that ransomware that's deployed, you know, if it's a big business that's hit by ransomware, it's probably been seen somewhere else in one of the other big mainstream. You know, you see them on the news. They're not too dissimilar. Either they've been taken from the dark web. You know, they've been shared between groups, and, and the code's been slightly altered. That that's the end game. You know, everything they've done before that can be detected by the SOC. So it's it's about you know how far down the chain you detect it, as we've spoken about. Um, if you get to that point at the end where the ransomware is deployed, then you know that's when your IR comes in. Yeah, it, interesting what you're saying there about the the payment because. We're never going to be in a situation where ransomware groups don't get paid. There's always going to be somebody out there. There's always going to be a company out there that is going to pay for that data. And bizarrely, the whole kind of honor amongst thieves, the ransomware groups will stick to that. If they get paid, they will remove their data from their systems. They will delete that data and they will give proof of that. I mean, there are going to be some that, that don't and stick it out somewhere on the dark web and take the payment, double extortion, all that kind of stuff. But for for you know a lot of the stories that we read these groups do get paid but a lot of the incident response groups do that negotiation for you so the customers don't have to worry about that they can engage the ir teams and they will go off and do that that um that conversation that negotiation and end up buying the monero or bitcoin or whatever it is to go to go and pay them off but i think that's just a uh indicative really of the situation we're in from a cybercrime perspective, because we're never going to get to a point where people are not not going to pay the ransom. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You've, you've also mentioned in the use of cryptocurrency. I think that was a big game changer as well because of the anonymity of it. You know, they can they can get into a system and they can put the ransomware note down. And it's nine times out of 10, if not every time now, it is going to be to a, a Bitcoin wallet or something along those lines because, you know, it, it is so anonymous. Um, you know, before cryptocurrency was really a thing these ransomware attacks it was totally different you know because the way you pay cryptocurrency and we won't go down that rabbit hole but you know it's, <laughs> it's 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 um it's so hard to see where that money goes near impossible to see where that money goes so i think because cryptocurrency is now mainstream as well the ransomware groups are all over that and they'll take use to that i mean why not it, it works um, but you saying that the IAR team come in to, to have that conversation with them, I think that's because there's processes now and there's methodologies that are followed. You want to be saying the right things, obviously. You don't want to be the IT manager that's 
panicked. The thing they're thinking about is they're going to lose their job. They're going to cost their company two million pounds. You know, you want to bring in a professional cybersecurity team who can come in. Hopefully, they've had experience dealing with that before or something similar, and they know the right things to say. And in some cases, they might be stalling. You know, there's there's a whole other kettle of fish. So when people talk about joining the cyber industry or trying to get a job in cyber, blue team, red team, purple, whatever. There are so many different roles that they can go into. Um, it, it's it's actually quite crazy how much you can do in, in cyber. Yeah, the number of roles that there. Uh, I mean, we had uh, my nephew uh, last year came and did some work experience with us, and he was amazed at the number of different roles that we had just within the company I work for, let alone across IT or cyber in in general um but even within the SOC as you see as you say from from an analyst perspective or threat hunting perspective or uh, instant response um anything on those kind of lines is there's a there's a there's a huge number of roles out there for people if if they're interested in it yeah and that, i think that's where i'd like to touch on the sort of skills gap part and recommendations for anyone that wants to join the cyber industry it's to do your research first. I know it's very tongue-in-cheek to say you should do that for any job, but specifically for, for cyber, because there are so many different roles and they are all quite specialist in their own right, um, it is good to, to go and, you know, even if it's just at a foundation level, how does um, a SOC work? What does a SOC analyst do? What does an IR um, analyst do or a penetration tester in red team if you can get those foundations right and then sort of branch out from there, then, you know, it, it, that's great. I think it's difficult, or the most difficult part is getting your foot in the door because once you're in cyber, the, the opportunities are endless. The world is your oyster, but getting in is is difficult. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, and I think, I mean, it's controversial to say, but I mean, I've seen some talk on LinkedIn recently about uh, sort of like HR tools where people put job postings and then they post them to LinkedIn. There's issues with the API that an entry level job or, or LinkedIn tags it as an entry level job. It, in the in the description, it's required of eight years experience and these three certifications. And I, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a massive um, issue, if you like, where junior positions are required to have x experience already and i think there needs to be a change because there definitely is a skills gap and and any cyber company will be feeling that uh lack of um what's the word persons that can come and fill those roles i think the main thing that i've noticed is when i was at school you know growing up it yes that was on the curriculum but it wasn't it as we know it today it's only recently that, that basic coding and things like that are included in, I think, secondary school. Maybe I'm, I'm not sure if it's primary school yet, but that's now becoming more mainstream. And uh, for those that aren't academic, um, that don't want to go to university or even college, I think the things like some of the summer internships, a lot of the private sector and, and government uh, places are doing and apprenticeships, stick someone in a sock for a week, for a month over their summer break and I guarantee you they will probably get more out of it than someone that does um, something at college, even at degree level. You know, I, I, I'm quite a firm believer. And again, this is personal opinion, but qualified does not always mean, sorry, certified does not always mean qualified. <laughs> um, and I've met a lot of people that have got all the certs under the sun, 
know that they've got quite high um you know master's degree whatever and you know it it doesn't make any difference yeah i i, I fully agree I, i've been in interview situations where we've been speaking to somebody and they've got a ccna because they've picked it up from their their degree as part of the university um and you'll ask them some networking questions and and they get a little bit lost um and i think being able to have some of that hands-on uh, experience whether it be um, a work experience whether it be some kind of internship uh, i think is is really is a fantastic point you made there sean because i think we do need to be able to address that that skills gap from somewhere and as you say once you're in once you've got your foot in the door um you've got people that you can talk to you're you're networking across various different uh, vendors or various different uh, customers or various different partners um, and you will be able to have conversations with those people in order to get into those various different jobs. But getting that foot in the door is is very difficult. And I think we do need to find some way of um, of making that easier for people. Yeah, exactly. And as you say, everyone knows each other in cyber. You know, you don't have to go too far before you bump into someone that you know. <laughs> it's very and incestuous, as it, I say. It is. It is very, yeah. But, um, you know, if if you are someone that tries to do all the certs or you're top 5% on Try Hack Me, and you come and sit in the work environment and you can't do those things, it's going to follow you around, unfortunately. You know, it's, it's a bit like a, a black mark on your CV, which is horrible to say. But, you know, the opportunities are there and the opportunities are endless. So if anyone asks me, I'll always encourage them to have a look at, at cyber. Obviously, I'm a big advocate for SOC, but the SOC has so many uh, options within it as well. So anyone that is looking to go into cyber, I would highly recommend giving it a go. Do you think we need to, as an industry, give a little bit more leeway, I guess, to some of those people coming through as part of these job descriptions and kind of, I guess, help a little bit more with the on-the-job training and um, I guess a little bit more of the kind of trust element to, to be able to bring yeah. these people in, to be able to train them up? I know they could, you could train them up for six months and they could leave to something better, but in order to be able to help facilitate some of these people coming into the cyber industry. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. You hit it right on the head there with with trust, but also the capacity to train. So uh, in terms of capacity to train, if you bring in someone on an internship or an apprenticeship, they're going to probably need much more training at a foundation level um, as opposed to someone that's fresh out of, of uni as a graduate. You know, that they've been given that uh, academic level. So they, they probably have an idea how SOC works. Um, they've probably been taught about ISOs and business continuity and all those sort of uh, degree level things. But in terms of an apprenticeship person, yes, they're probably going to need a bit more. So you're going to need to take someone away from something to facilitate that unless you are hiring a dedicated person to train. And, you know, that's that's not something that I, I know of. Um, but as, as a senior analyst, you know, I'm, I'm training people um, when they join the team on a regular basis. And I like doing that because the other issue is retention. So when someone joins your team, if if this is their first SOC job or their first job in cyber, you've got a great opportunity there, maybe cheekily to say, but to kind of mold them to not only what the businesses need, but also to make them feel like they're being appreciated. You're giving them the time of day. Um, you're showing them the pathway ahead of them and the opportunities they have. Um, if you're in a business that's willing to invest, that is a massive win. Um, and you've got a SOC analyst there that's that's happy in the team they're in and they know the places that they can go with that team. Unfortunately, 
there's a massive issue in this industry at the moment. Those that do get their foot in the door, they they spend a year or two in the sock and then they go to the next one and then they do the next one. And and each time they move, they ask for more money or extra certs, you know, and that, that is another problem is retention. So I think that is an issue. How do you say it? Not with, not with the people. I guess it is in a way. That's, that's another controversial thing to say. But <laughs> if you can get yourself into a small business and grow with the business um, and they're going to invest in you and you work with a team that you get on with and you love, if you're only moving for money, then, you know, you know, you can say what you like about that. But if you're going to go into a massive business, they are going to have dedicated people to train you. Um, they've got the money to invest in you. But you're not going to really grow with the company as much. So there are positives and negatives to both. Um, I prefer working with the smaller teams and growing with a business because you've got a bit more of a voice. Um, you're not just a bum in the seat, if you like. You're not just a big, uh, small cog in a, a big engine. Um, but I have worked at the other bigger places and, and I enjoyed that as well. So, you know, you, there are pros and cons to it. Yeah, um, probably put you on the spot a little bit here, but if somebody's listening to this and they, they don't work in a in a sock and they're looking to try and move into that role, have you got any kind of recommendations, suggestions, either for either kind of training elements or you know things that they should be looking out for within within industry to to kind of help them get that foot up and maybe stand out a little bit more for some of yeah. these companies to kind of take notice of them as they're looking to apply. Yeah, definitely. I think the main thing that we'd look at when interviewing people is, it, honestly, it is just the, the proof that they have tried to um, learn a bit more about the role um, and the tools involved. And they've spent some time researching that. And if they can have a conversation about it, you know, we're talking about entry level roles here. We're not expecting them to, to know how the whole thing works. Um, so, there's, there's places or businesses like Caps Lock. Um, I was on a call recently with Caps Lock who do sort of cyber boot camps for people that are, you know, nothing to do with cyber. They might have come from a bit of an IT background, but they're looking to transi transition into this industry. Um, and it's bad to say, but, you know, Google and, and YouTube, there is so much free content out there. Again, for any industry, really, you can go and learn everything online. But that's where that research element comes in, because as we've been discussing, there are so many pathways within this industry. If they're specifically looking for a SOC analyst role, then do your research as to, like what we've been saying today, the day-to-day -day of a SOC analyst, do your research in that, look at your tools, um, the buzzwords we've been talking about, like MDR, instant response, and uh, cyber kill chain, MITRE, all these little things, and go and, go and research them. Because if you can drop those keywords in an interview, you'll have my attention straight away. So that makes a massive difference. Do your research, know what role you want to go into, get an idea of the buzzwords and the sort of technologies and day-to-day -day processes, and go and learn a little bit. You know, Rome was a bit on a day, but as long as you can understand, have a conversation about them, you're, you're already onto a win there. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic advice. Uh, this is, uh, I think this will probably be episode four when it goes out, and I think it's the third time that Caps Lock has been mentioned. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's certainly something that's worth looking into. Um, and just on that a little bit, I think one of the, the sometimes when you're, uh, I mean, I've been in the industry over 25 years now, maybe a bit more, but sometimes there's little snippets of advice or little kind of phrases that you remember. And I remember as I was starting out, Somebody said to me that if you break down at the side of the road and you're flagging people for help, nobody's going to stop. But if you're pushing your car, people will stop to help you. And that 
that kind of, I know it sounds a little bit strange, but that kind of metaphor to say that if you're showing that you're helping yourself, people will, will help believe in you and they'll help train you and they'll help get you to where you're going because they're seeing you're, you're not just there for a free ride. You're actually wanting to, to help and, and, and move yeah, on. Absolutely. Um, I like that yeah. one. I'll have to use that yeah. one. It's, you it's, can, a, it's yeah. momentum. You get that ball rolling, <laughs> yeah. everyone else will start jumping in and that's it. You'll be off. Yeah, absolutely. You can use that one for free. Um, <laughs> so look, we're, thanks very much, Sean, for everything that that, uh, that you've spoken about. We're kind of coming towards the end of the podcast now. Uh, and as we mentioned, we have this section towards the end that is for sock's sake, where we kind of ask our guests, is there anything that you've uh, you've seen, you've done, there's an anecdote that really kind of sits there and makes you go, oh, for sock's sake. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I saw your notes when you sent this one through and, and one thing <laughs> came to mind straight away. And without naming anyone or custom, you know, nothing like that, um, we, we received alert into the SOC uh, for some suspicious DNS connections uh, and some some API calls. And um, the analyst that was investigating it, he, he messaged me. He was like, you've got to come and have a look at this. And um, they were DNS connections to the love sense. Um, you know, sex toys, adult content, whatever. And um, looking into the API calls, this this user had uh, plugged in their toy to their work device. Um, and amongst the API calls and, and Bluetooth connections that, you know, you can put two and two together was what was going on. Um, there were the internet browser general browser connections to certain websites as well so um that was that was quite fun to raise to the customer uh, and very rapidly they said that the uh and i think this was quite extreme but they ended up isolating the uh, device and asking for the user to come to the it department and oh how i'd love to be a fly on that wall that was fantastic oh, that's fun that's, that's a fantastic story i mean if there's any better way to end a podcast that's with a story about sex toys well, I, there you I, go I can't imagine, as you say, being a fly on the wall for that conversation as they're as they're called in. That would be <laughs> that would be fantastic. But look, Sean, thank you very much for your time. No problem. Uh, it's been thank fantastic, you. Fantastic, fantastic talking to you, and thanks very much for being on the podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Mm-hmm.